Well, I encourage you to take out your Bible at home there and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we look at verses 1 through 9. We're in the second week of a four-week series on God's resetting of our lives. And if there's anything I've learned through this pandemic and basically been kind of uh, sheltered at home for roughly the last five weeks is that things have changed and it's an opportunity to sit back, to reflect, to meditate and to make some changes in my life, to see what's really a distraction and what's really important and to get back to the basics. And as we talk about that today, we're going to talk about the coming together of Christ's followers. We talked last week about faith over fear. Faith needs to eat our fears. But now, in this time when we are getting ready in a few weeks, maybe a month, month and a half to get back together, our church is going to be different. And we're going to come together and we're going to be different people because we've been apart. And so we want to talk about the coming together, how we're going to reunify as Christ followers. In James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, James writes this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brother, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The lack of unity during this COVID-19 pandemic has been astounding to me. When I think back and look at history in America, when we had World War II, World War I, other wars, 9-11, for example, our country came together and was unified. It's sad that while even thousands of Americans are dying, we still can't come together to fight this common invisible enemy together without creating division. Some networks are running news about the breakdown of how many African Americans or Hispanic or immigrants have died in proportion to other ethnicities in our country. They do the same for the prison population, the elderly, and as I mentioned, the immigrants. And they also, uh, the president has just recently closed the borders to immigration. And that's been a, a, a very divisive thing among people as well. We don't know where we are in all of this. I'm still learning. I don't always know who's telling the true story or not. And no matter which side you're on, the point is, as Americans, we need to come together in unity and support for one another. We faced the divisiveness of politics with impeachment earlier this year, and we still have issues with people trying to define what's fair and just and, and how we can uh, have equality among the different um, 
colors of people in our country. And I even talked with the elders about this issue. The reason I bring all this up is to say this, that we could face divisions here in our church as we prepare to come back together. Whenever Governor Reynolds decides to give us the word that we can open up, we might be limited to how many people. And uh, as people come back, we got to realize that some are going to come back right away. Others are going to come later because they're going to be skeptical or they have health conditions. Some are going to say we should wear a mask. Some are going to be okay without a mask. Some are workers in healthcare and they see the disease as something that can affect them as they care for their patients. And all these things we're going to have to face as we gather together. What do we do when we're here in the sanctuary as we worship? And I want to assure you that even now, this week, the elders are discussing that, and we've been in contact with our own Chuck Gibson from Medic and Dr. Mario C. as well, and we're going to lean on their advice on how we can make this as safe a place, as sanitary a place that you can imagine in order to keep everyone safe as we prepare to come back together. And so it's in that backdrop I want to address this issue of prejudice about people comparing themselves to one another, putting people in particular categories or different stereotypes or classes in our minds. Some of us have grown up in homes where prejudice was part of the conversation, where it was accepted and it was even justified sometimes. But it grieves God's heart to see people on earth and especially God's people discriminating against others. There should be no place in the church for that. You know, Sunday morning is still the most segregated time of the week in our churches. There are more and more multi-ethnic churches that are being planted, and it's a picture of what heaven's going to be like when you have all these different colors of people worshiping together. And I know even in Converge, that's something that they've been doing for the last decade. But I also understand and accept that worship styles among different people groups are going to attract people of the same people group. That's fine. Forcing people to worship together is not a good thing. But if we're separating on a purpose to avoid someone of another people group, then we're sinning against God. So I want to contextualize scriptures to our current pandemic situation. So this is going to be more of a practical message, not going in depth into the scripture, but to think about and talk about these scriptures we're going to look at in the context of this pandemic that we're facing. And we're going to look at five things that answers the question, why does God want his believers to come together and be unified? And these aren't new things, but I hope they're something that will remind you. And sometimes we need to kind of be jerked back to reality and pulled to the center because myself included, I think we all battle with this idea of prejudice and we get worked up about things. And so the first thing you see on your outline is that we are all created in the image of God. Red and yellow, black and white, everyone is precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of this world. We're all created in the image of God. And I've studied this theological truth over and over various times throughout the years. And it's really not a settled issue exactly what that means to be made in the image of God. But we are. Many believe that we take on the characteristics of God's emotions like love and kindness and compassion and mercy and empathy. 
to, to share some of those things. And many of these are just merely emotions while they're characteristics of God in a perfect way. We're certainly not made in the image of God because we have a physical body and God is a spirit according to John 4, 24. It's interesting that the Amish people, the Mennonites, they don't believe that they can be photographed because to be photographed means that uh, you're making an idol based on one of the commandments where it says you'll have, make, do not make a graven image. And so when they feel like you're taking a picture of them, it's making a graven image because they are made in the image of God. Well, what sets us apart also being in the image of God? Logic, language, creativity, the ability to make decisions, not like animals. They do things instinctively. They can build nests and different things. But if you watch, they use the same pattern, the same design over and over and over the instincts that God has given them. But man is able to start and build a brand new design from scratch. So creativity is different. Morally, we have a free will and the right to choose. Spiritually, Adam and Eve were made perfect, but because of their sin, it affected their spiritual connection with God. And as we turn to him, God is in the business of restoring us and bringing us back to the purpose we were created for, to be made in his image. You know, that word image is a Hebrew word where we see it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The Hebrew word means that the kings of that time built statues, built things that were very ornate that resembled them and then placed them around their kingdom so people would worship them because that was their image. And so we are made in the image of God. We're his representatives as we go out into this world to show them that we're created for a purpose and we're created to love people. It's because we're made in God's image that we believe in the sanctity of life, that every life is sacred, whether they have physical or mental challenges, whether they're economically challenged, and the list goes on and on and on. God doesn't make junk or make someone by accident. He has a unique purpose for every person who's created and comes to life on this earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, then God says, let us, notice the Trinity there, us, plural, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I mentioned just a moment ago that uh, even people who have physical challenges or mental challenges have a purpose for being here on this planet. I know we've got a group in our society that thinks that once it's detected in the uh, womb that a baby has Down syndrome, for example, then you have the opportunity to abort that life. But you know, every child I've met or every adult I've met that had Down syndrome, there's two things that they bring to a family. That's love and that's joy. And while it's very hard and difficult to take care of someone who's mentally or physically handicapped, there's things that families and caregivers can learn and gain from them where they wouldn't have gotten it anywhere else. I think of a story that I read 
this week about a group of Special Olympians. They were there to run the 400-meter dash, and they lined up to their marks. And the lady talks about this as she tells a story that she saw a gentleman stand up just before the gun went off, and he had a three-piece suit on. And there was a middle-aged man down there on the blocks getting ready to run the 400 meters. And he was overweight, and he had a problem with continually wringing his hands. That was one of the, the issues that he was dealing with. And so this little Down syndrome guy that was wringing his hands, this gun sounded, and he looked around, and everybody took off, and he looked like he was confused, but he started to run in a very slow pace. And the story goes on that the dad was standing up in his three-piece suit cheering on Lenny, cheering him on as he went around the track. And as he got to the last bend, everyone else had finished the race. And his dad stood up and yelled even louder, come on, Lenny, you can do it. You can finish the race. And he looked around and said, that's my boy out there. And then he went down and welcomed his son across the finish line. And, and, and the woman said that she began to weep as she saw the excitement of this dad dealing with this Down syndrome uh, middle-aged man and the love that they had for one another. Isn't it amazing to think about what we can gain no matter who somebody is because they're made in the image of God, what we can learn, what we can gain in our lives. So our application here is we must treat everyone of every color with dignity and respect to them as they're made in God's image. And so when God looks down at earth, he doesn't see uh, African-Americans and Asians and Hispanic and Caucasian. He sees two sets of people, those who know Christ and him as savior and connected with him in relationship and those who have yet to receive him as Lord. So we have to treat everyone of every color with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God. In our VBS last summer, the material we used, as we have in the last few years, was from Answers in Genesis, and it tells us that we are one, all part of one human race, one human race, that we were, uh, our ancestors are Adam and Eve. And then, of course, after the flood, it would have been the eight people that were on the ark that came off and repopulated the earth. And so I thought it was important to think about this. This In just a moment, we're going to watch a video for a few minutes to explain what that means, that we're part of one human race. But Acts 17, 26 says this, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God had a purpose for different ethnicities in our culture, different uh, color people, colors of people to carry out their purpose in this life. And as he did, they went in different times in history. So let's listen to this video together as we try to understand what it means that we're part of one human race. I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we are all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26 where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. 
It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then their children had children and those children had children and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6, 9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark. And according to Genesis 9, 19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11 and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who are descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, and thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which by the way represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So. Since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said. I know that video had some detailed things in it, especially the second half of it, but I hope you get the gist of it because we're very confused in our world where we think there's all these different people groups, and there are, but they're based really out of the one issue that we're all from Adam and Eve. And our application here is remember that we are all ancestors of Adam and Eve. They're the ones who started the whole human race. Third, in God's eyes, we are all on level ground in our standing with him. We are all on equal standing in God's eyes. That's important that we understand. We all come the same way to him if we come to him. But also, he creates us 
And no one is better than anyone else because each person is unique and on their own private journey through life in this world. Back to James chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible open there again, I encourage you to turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality, as it says in verse 1, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice there in verse 1, it says no partiality, that everyone is equal, that he doesn't treat some better than others. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. And here's the key. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James is saying here, if you show favoritism to the rich man because of what he can do for you, and what benefits he can provide for you. And you disparage the poor man because you think he's no value to you. He has no um, a way to help you personally. You are wrong. You are sinful. He said, you are discriminating in verse 4 among yourselves and you've become judges. And when we do that, we set ourselves up as God. We take God's spot when we do that. In verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God says that the lowly will be the ones who will be blessed, that the humble will be exalted. In verse 6, it says, But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Someone who is a child of God, made in God's image. In verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, and you know, the Shema, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and Jesus added to it what's written here in verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In a sense, what he's saying here is if you show partiality, if you show favoritism towards somebody for whatever reason, you disparage one and you love the other because they can benefit you or for whatever reason, then you are in sin and you're going against the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Pretty strong words from James. God does not want us to show any partiality to anyone. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Again, we're all on the level ground. We've all sinned. All mankind has sinned except for the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, 45, it says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God gives us divine revelation through his creation. And then he gives what's called common grace to believers and non-believers, to everyone on this planet. He allows them to live. Some live in better conditions than others. Some live in better governments than others. Some have better parents than others. 
But God gives a common grace, just like the sun comes up on the believers and sets on the believers, so it does for the non-believers as well. Again, that's what's called common grace. But the diversity among humans is absolutely incredible. Just look at people and how different they are, even in our own country. Then see how people are very different and as you travel to other parts of the world. God is a creative God. He makes uh, even twins unique. Even they have separate fingerprints. Everyone is unique in God's sight. So the application here is while we all experience life differently, God's common grace is on display for all to see daily. Again, from the human perspective, it's a matter of what people do with that grace. Does God's kindness lead them to repentance? As it says in Romans 2.4, do people respond to that common grace to seek after the God of creation? Well, the transition here is that God created men and women to have an intimate relationship with the Father. That's what his purpose was in creating us. We are the center of his creation, this special creation. And so our next point is that we know that God loves all people the same and just as they are. It's one of the greatest things about the Christian life and Christianity is that we don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to clean up our physical appearance to come to God. No matter what we find ourselves doing in life, God accepts us just as we are. And of course, as we come to him on his terms, then he will forgive us and take us on to have that relationship with him. And he does that when we first come to faith in Christ. He just accepts us just as we are with all our sins and he washes away our sin. But even as a believer, if we stray away or even daily as we confess our sins, God doesn't... uh, doesn't judge us for our sin, but he shows compassion toward us. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, Jesus is the propitiation or the atoning power for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As I've said plenty of times from this pulpit, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level and open to all people. Rich or poor, black or white, Uh, Hispanic, Asian, old or young, wherever in life you find yourself, whatever situation, whatever country you grew up in, our God accepts you just as you are. And that's the great thing about coming to Jesus is that we don't have to, to change. He does the changing for us after we are regenerated, after we are born again, after we receive Christ as our Savior. But we have to come with a repentant heart, confessing Christ as our Savior and asking for forgiveness of sin. And then God takes us and adopts us into his forever family. So our application is this, is that God desires all people, no matter their situation in life, to have a relationship with him. And that should be our attitude as we think about this issue of prejudice and discrimination, is that we want to see God save anyone and everyone. Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, there's no sense sharing the gospel with that person because they're not really a church-going type person. Well, that's the very kind of person that God wants us to talk to because they're the ones who need Jesus the most. God desires all people, no matter their situation in life, to have a relationship with him. 
This is where I want to drill down and talk about how we will understand each other and be unified as we gather together at some point when we're able to meet together as a church after uh, we get the all clear sign as we continue to go through this time of pandemic. We are all at unique places in our journey through life is our next point. We're all at unique places in our journey through life. And that's the truth. Every one of us is running an individual race. Even though we have brothers and sisters in Christ and other people around us, at the end of the day, we are making our decisions based on our relationship with God alone. And God has a plan and purpose for each and every one of us. And it's unique to each human being. And we grow up in different parts of the country and the world. I grew up on the East Coast. We all have a unique set of parents. We have, we're different even from our siblings. As we grow up, it's interesting to me, as we grow up in the same house with the same brothers and sisters, how when we all move into adulthood, how people make different choices because we have different experiences and personalities and things that we learn. But we're not to judge people on where they are because we're all on this journey taking next steps. Some are just more cooperative with God working in their life than others. My point is that we have to be tolerable. We have to be understanding. We have to be accepting and compassionate toward all people. We doesn't mean we condone everything that everyone does or that someone does, but we can love them just as Jesus loves us. And we see that in scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, we see that that God had a purpose, a unique purpose for the prophet Jeremiah. And he shared this with them. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God had a preconceived plan, even while Jeremiah was in the womb, as to what God was going to call him to do. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows our beginning and our end. He knows our birth date. He knows the day we're going to pass on in this life. In Acts 13, 36, it says, For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He decayed in the grave. The point of this whole message is this, as we prepare soon, six weeks, whatever it is, to gather back together at church, we're all going to come together and we're going to gather with different vantage points and how we view the coronavirus. Some, no matter the age, are going to be cautious to return. There's going to be young families and there's going to be elderly that may not come the first few weeks. Some are ready even now to, to go to work and get back to a somewhat normal life. I've had several people tell me they can't wait to gather together and give hugs. And of course, we're not going to be able to do that for a while. Some feel our liberties have been infringed upon beyond the degree that is laid out according to the Constitution. Some are still fearful and afraid to get in groups, even with social distancing. I get all that, and I understand, and I sympathize with those and other viewpoints. But let's caution against being judgmental of people who don't approach this issue in the same way that you do. Some will wear masks, and some won't. 
unless the governor makes it mandatory to meet with a mask on and worship. Some will want to lather up more than others with sanitizer, and we hope to have plenty of that here in the building. And while the leadership's going to take every precaution available, we all will welcome feedback from you as to how we can do things better and make this as safe a place, a risk-free place as we can. But we want to set up, be able to gather together and worship together because the church is all about community. And we'll talk about that more next week. But this can, this particular issue can be a very divisive thing as we gather together. Some have said the cure could be worse than the disease. And if we don't open things up at some point, especially to allow commerce to take place, we're going to have some deep mental health issues. Some have said that substance abuse has already risen because of this. I talked with a, a counselor just last two weeks that they're concerned because the reporting of abuse by children and other people in families has dropped dramatically because people who are abused can't get away and go to a safe place and share what's going on. Long-term food insecurities for people as the stay-at-home order continues. The kids with their ongoing need for meals. And as I talked with uh, Marion Stone just today in a group of pastors and down at uh, Edison Academy, and they're preparing to provide food in the schools all the way to June 30th for kids in need. People are out of work. Unemployment money is going to run out at some point. These are all things that we'll see and how will we as a church respond to those within our congregation, but those even in our community? Yeah, we still have to protect all people from this invisible enemy, and especially those in our midst who are the most vulnerable. The biggest issue I find is getting the facts on what's going on. You have politicians spinning the truth of this virus for political gain. The medical people bless them and pray for them. They're learning and they're adapting every day as they learn new nuances about this coronavirus. And sometimes they have to make changes. They're in uncharted territory. Just like the pioneers in our country when we had the first colonies that were settled on the East Coast and people decide to head out to uh, go to the West Coast or go to the Midwest. They were pioneers. They cut trails. They went in uncharted territory. They encountered uh, Indians. They encountered animals that maybe they had never seen before. But they made their way and they adapted on the fly. And that's where we're at. That's why we all need to take a deep breath and listen to one another and support each other and be there for one another, even if we have a different viewpoint about the protection or whether to open up at what time or not. These folks that are in leadership are human beings and they're trying to make wise decisions for all the people involved in our country to keep them safe, but also to make sure that people are able to have income so they don't have to suffer uh, through the fact of not having enough food and other means to live. At least I hope and trust that they're doing what's best for all of us in this country. So we need to pray for our leaders our president, our vice president, the task force that they've put together to set up these guidelines, the task force to determine guidelines to open and all the local and uh, state leaders as well. So here's our application. Remember that each person's background is unique to themselves. 
Each person's background is unique to themselves. So I hope you think through these principles. Think about the people you're in contact with. These may be people that you have a hard time getting along with. You have different personalities. You have different values. Whatever those differences are, God brings people together in, diverse, in diversity to bring unity because we can complement one another. It would be a boring life if we all thought the same way. Instead of looking at it as a negative thing, look at how God is putting the pieces of a puzzle together for us to complement one another in relationship. And that's what he's trying to do in our lives. So keep these things in mind as we move through the next month or two ahead. And here's the key thought as we close today. Unity with diversity is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. Unity with diversity. That's a beautiful thing in God's eyes. And when you read in Revelation about gathering around the throne and people from every nation and tribe will be there to sing, to worship, to gather together as one, that's gonna be a beautiful time when we're there on the other side to see the diversity around the throne. As we close today, I wanna to share this illustration. It's a story that a lady who had cancer wrote about her experience. And I hope you are touched by what she had to say. She says, the first time you park your car in the vast cold cavern of the underground garage and step into the hospital elevator, you may feel alien and forsaken. Perhaps you'll feel that you have been singled out unfairly, plucked from your healthy life, and cast into this cruel ordeal of cancer. Walking through the lobby with a manila envelope of x-rays under your arm and a folder of lab reports and notes from your previous doctor, you'll sense the deep tremor of your animal fear, a barely audible uneasiness trickling up from somewhere inside of you. But there's good news too. As you pass one hallway after another looking for elevator B, you'll see that this place is full of people riding the escalators, reading books and magazines, checking their phones near the coffee pots. And it will dawn on you that most of these people have cancer. In fact, it seems as if the whole world has cancer. With relief and dismay, you'll realize I'm not special. Everyone here has cancer. The withered old Jewish lefty newspaper editor, the Latino landscape contractor with the stone roughened hands, the tough lesbian with the bleached blonde crew cut and the black leather jacket. And you'll be cushioned and bolstered by the sheer number and variety of your fellows. Well, this strange country of cancer, it turns out, is the true democracy. One more real than the nation that lies outside these walls and more authentic than the lofty statements of politicians. A democracy more incontrovertible than platitudes or aspiration. When you're in that environment and you realize everyone is exposed and authentic and transparent because of a disease like cancer, it really brings unity in the midst of diversity. And I hope and pray that that's what we'll see as we gather back together in a few weeks. Here's some questions to ponder this week. You can apply this message even now as you're out and about, as you're going to grocery stores, 
and everybody has a different viewpoint of what social distancing is and all these things. First of all, how can you overcome the comparison game in your life? How can you overcome comparing yourself to someone else? Second of all, can you accept the differences and see the beauty in them of another, of one another? Can you accept the differences and see the beauty of them of one another? And then will you reach out to someone this week who's completely different than you are to have a conversation? That would be a great challenge. You, maybe you do that on a phone. Maybe you do that through email or FaceTime or whatever means you can do that. But there's a good way, one of the best ways to break down discrimination and prejudice is to meet someone who's different from you and build a relationship with them. And that builds compassion and empathy and unity in your life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for it being our true north. Lord, it helps keep us balanced and centered about how we should think about people that are all around us. And Lord, some of us have grown up very prejudiced and it's just been instilled into our hearts and our minds by our parents or by another relative or by a teaching, by a professor. Help us, Lord, as Christians to break those bonds of discrimination and realize that we're all created in your image and that you accept us and love us and that we all come to you on equal footing and that you have a plan and a purpose for each person in this life. Everyone's important. So Lord, help us. Help us this week to build relationships with people that may look different than us or act different than us or are mentally or physically challenged to understand what it is to walk in their shoes this week. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.